What is global health? It's a study that includes research practice and focuses on health, but also increasingly a real call out to achieving equity in health for all people worldwide. As I mentioned when I talked about COVID, it also really emphasizes the transnational nature of an issue, both in terms of its determinants and also the solutions. It, it's a field of study, so that means that it actually doesn't just draw on one discipline, but many disciplines, and really calls upon collaboration, not just between and within countries, but also across sectors, sectors both in terms of academia, public, private, but also sectors in terms of things that happen within the health sector, but also outside the health sector environment, etc. So of course, we have global institutions like the World Health Organization, we have the World Bank, national governments, non-governmental organizations, many, many civil society actors, but we also have an increasing rise in philanthropic organizations that are also really defining that global health arena. And an example of that would be the Gates Foundation. I think it's really important to start with the successes of global health. It started as international health is what we kind of talked about like in the 90s. And it, it has been this experiment in collaboration, uh, this experiment in achieving collective goals to protect human beings from deadly pathogens. And it was very successful with uh, smallpox, of course, and also very successful when you just think about immunization as a whole. Vaccine preventable diseases have decreased significantly. You know, in, in most parts of the world, we don't have to worry as much as children dying before they reach the age of five years old. And so it's been like this amazing experiment in working together and looking for problems that affect humanity and finding solutions to those problems. It's also given us, you know, pretty large bureaucratic, but also necessary organizations, you know, like uh, the United Nations, UNICEF, World Health Organization, World Bank, that really kind of helps us to manage and somewhat coordinate these goals and this effort to kind of bring all of humanity to a certain standard. So I think all of that is part of the history and the story of global health as well. The power dynamic in global health has always been, the power has been within the West and really wider countries. If you look at it, you know, there's this huge divide between white countries and brown and black countries that global health has also kind of been like this savior mechanism. And it's been this like we help you and you should be grateful type uh, dynamic. Um, and that hasn't been useful. I do see global health as an area and a space that we can work to achieve health equity for everyone across the globe. And when I think about global health, I like to think of it through a social determinants of health framework. But more importantly, I, I really like the phrase, think globally, act locally. And I, I like this phrase because it makes us think about the actions that we take on a local scale, whether it's in our communities and our cities, and how that can impact the health of our global community at large. And often I think when we think of global health, or we, we often think of things that are happening across the world, not necessarily, we don't think of Canada, and I'm not saying everyone thinks this way, but it's a common you know, misconception that global health is something that's done abroad. But honestly, there, there's a lot of inequity within, within Canada, and there's a lot of areas that we need to work within to improve the health of all communities and not a select few, which is what is happening in our country today. 
for a variety of reasons. You know, it's it's people who uh, live in places where health systems just simply can't meet their day-to-day needs. There are people who are prevented from accessing care because of bad policies, whether that be in the way that health services are designed and implemented, um, or whether it's that they're specifically targeted and excluded from accessing the care that they need, or whether it's because the, the medicines and the vaccines that they need are, are too expensive. There's a lot of reasons why people are not able to access the kind of care that they need. And, and for me, MSF was an opportunity to shine a light, uh, not just on the problems, but also some of the solutions for, for how we can meaningfully close the gaps in access to truly life-saving kinds of services. You just heard from Dr. Erica Dergario, Dr. Ngozi Arandu, Haban Ali, and Jason Nickerson, a few of our guests for this episode of Raw Talk. Today, we're exploring the wide-ranging and complex field of global health. We'll hear about how global health issues are prioritized, the persistent effects of colonialism and white supremacy which affect this work, and the importance of highlighting local perspectives and youth to achieve equity and advance health outcomes. Before we begin, we wish to acknowledge the land on which the University of Toronto and our podcast operates. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional territory of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently the Mississaugas of the Credit River. This territory is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties and is within the lands protected by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Agreement. This meeting place is still home to many Indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. We ask listeners to visit IndigenousPeoplesAtlasOfCanada.ca and Native-Land.ca to learn more about and reflect upon the Indigenous peoples whose traditional territory they currently occupy and their own role in reconciliation. We are a podcast that focuses on the stories and science of medicine and health. Today, we are discussing global health. As we'll learn throughout the episode, the field of global health is founded in colonialism and white supremacy and has perpetrated violence and oppression on peoples around the world, including Indigenous peoples. We hope that throughout today's episode, you'll reflect on what assumptions you might have about this topic, and what your role is in the essential projects of decolonization. Hi, my name is Frank. And I'm Noor. We are your hosts for this episode. Dr. Erica de Ruggiero is the director of the Center for Global Health and director of the Collaborative Specialization in Global Health with the University of Toronto's Dalalana School of Public Health. We asked Dr. de Ruggiero how stakeholders identify and prioritize issues in global health, specifically as it relates to resource allocation. Some of the research I've been doing applies policy theories to try to understand how things get and stay or fall off or get back on agendas, you know, and allocation of resources that are really applied to keeping things like that on the agenda. It's really, really challenging, but I would say that what keeps things on the agenda you know, in part, evidence contributes. Uh, So there's a growing body of evidence that we need to address problem X. Global actors and their power and the kinds of capital, both political and economic capital that they can bring to an issue can also raise things on the agenda at the expense of other issues that may be also very important. And so I would say, you know, financial incentives are 
as much as I would hate that to be the only driver, certainly drive a lot of decisions. So the amount of resources that get put behind things. So when a Gates Foundation makes something a priority, it certainly helps to elevate it on the agenda because resources are going into it at the expense of, for example, neglected problems. There are many neglected disease that aren't getting the kind of resources uh, to find solutions to because they only affect a s- certain people in very poor countries. Now, that doesn't make them less important, but you can see where economic incentives and the power of certain individuals and institutions can actually drive an agenda and make something more important, even though some things also merit our attention. We asked Dr. DeRuggiero which specific issues in global health are being underserved. I bet you if you ask that question of the next 10 guests, then they may give you a different answer. (laughs) Uh, I'll start with that caveat. However, let me talk about the nature of issues that I think are underfunded, relatively speaking. They tend to be the kinds of issues that really are looking at the social and environmental determinants of health. So how employment, gender, influence our health. We have done, I think, a really good job at funding specific diseases, not all of them, because some are more neglected than others and conditions. Uh, But we continue to fund things in a more vertical and disease siloed way. And I would say that what cuts across many of these diseases, whether you're thinking about TB or malaria, or a growing number of not just infectious diseases, but non-communicable diseases, many of these diseases are are actually about the social and working conditions in which people live and work. And paying attention to those what I call social determinants really, really need more attention. The second has to do with our climate crisis, which we can't avoid anymore, but the incentives aren't currently going in that direction. So I think we have to shift the way in which we fund things towards more of a horizontal way. So looking at what cuts across some of these very important diseases and conditions and issues. And the second area from a health perspective is to focus on the health systems that we need to strengthen to better address some of these issues. So strengthening health systems and also looking at the social and environmental determinants of health, that is an orientation to how we fund, I think is critically needed. And this is what the Sustainable Development Goal agenda is actually trying to shift our thinking towards. Dr. Dirigario is alluding to the Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, 17 goals set by the United Nations General Assembly in 2015, designed to focus global action towards achieving a better and more sustainable future for all by the year 2030. There are also 169 targets and 231 indicators to qualify the SDGs, a massive undertaking to track for each of the 193 nations that adopted the goals. We asked about the data collected to measure progress on global health issues and the SDGs. I would sort of see this as like who, like who's producing the data and who wants to know, right? Because <laughs> it's it's very much driven in part by that, right? What gets measured, you know, the geographic location, the context for that, the governance level of the development and production of those indicators. So who was consulted on the development on, of those indicators? The what for, which kind of speaks to the who, but also what's the purpose and who 
who's funding it? Because uh, there's work being done, of course, where donors have interest in funding the production of certain measures related to indicators. So what is in it for them? And I'm not suggesting that there is always, you know, less than altruistic motive, but I think that also needs to be uh, taken into account. And when you apply that to try to understand how policies work, I think one of the other challenges from the research I've done is not not all policies are actually well articulated. So it's not always very clear, you know, what was really the objective. And so we have to start making some assumptions. And the other issue is that most of the indicators that we currently have, including many of them that are uh, part of the SDG agenda, are about measuring the problem. So, you know, what's percentage of people who are poor or percentage unemployed? Don't get me wrong, those things are really important, but they're not actually about the solutions. And an example of a solution would be social protection policies. We do have indicators like that, but in terms of the balance, I would argue more of our indicators measure the status of the problem and less so about what are the policy and program interventions aimed at changing that problem or the situation. And so the balance isn't quite right. So then you get a disproportionate number of measurement and, you know, this costs money too and resources to actually measure well. And we aren't necessarily always uh, capturing critical data about the degree of implementation of a policy intervention. So I think we have some work to do in terms of increasing the number of indicators and some of the measurement strategies related to measuring the solutions and policies being one of them and their kind of impact on different groups. We'll hear next from Dr. Ngozi Erondu, a senior research fellow at the Chanham House Center for Global Health Security, a senior public health advisor at Public Health England, and co-founder of Global Bridge Group. Dr. Irondu specializes in health systems and global health security, and is a dedicated advocate for increasing health research autonomy and capacity in countries across Africa. We asked Dr. Irondu about the weak links she's observed in global health. When I uh, went to London school, I started working on just looking at the the meningitis surveillance system in Chad, a Central African country, and. I had the opportunity opportunity to kind of look at other countries in the same region that was dealing with how to improve their surveillance system for meningitis, but also just in, in Africa, there's this strategy called IDSR, which is um, Integrated Disease Surveillance and Response, which is really, I mean, it's something that the U.S., Canada, uh, the U.K. could actually really use because it really requires people from disease areas coming together and speaking weekly about kind of what they're observing. It, it has a one health component. It, it's really an important uh, tool. But in some countries in Africa, it's more, it's superficial. They don't have the the either the training or the motivation or the political will to do IDSR in an optimal way. But when you talk to people who are really kind of keen to detect diseases, they, they'll tell you exactly what they need. When you're looking at disease surveillance integration, you have to remember that we have multiple donors. We have a lot of donors. You know, we have the Gates Foundation and Rotary that is funding polio. We have the Global Fund uh, that is funding TB, malaria, and HIV. We have uh, USAID that is focused more on, you know, this part, or or PEPFAR, which is focused more on malaria. President uh, Jimmy Carter's foundation, which focuses on guinea worm. And all of these people require, you know, reporting um, regularly. You know, some of these, some I mean, some of the reports 
are, are, are super extensive, takes months, you know, just to get the data and put it in. And then they say, we don't actually have time to do the work, <laughs> you know, the work that's required uh, to eliminate these diseases, to control these disease, diseases, or even to appropriately skill our, um, our staff uh, so that they can not just be foot soldiers, but be thinkers and, and designers and people who are able to adapt, you know, recommendations from WHO or from other organizations to their country context. I think when you hear that and then you take a step back and you think about like aid just in general, you think about like if we're giving, we being, being the global north or the western countries so much money to these countries and we're not seeing, you know, the outcomes that we expect. Like we're not seeing malaria decreasing in uh, prevalence at the, at the rate that we would expect. It's taking a very long time to really, really eradicate polio or, you know, we're not seeing, you know, health seeking behavior increase. We have to think about what are these people saying that we're not actually addressing with our funding like these huge gaps in like policy is kind of like the umbrella the inputs of policy include like you know the what we're funding the objectives the outcomes and you know what i realized is that a, a lot of like donor donor organizations or even multilaterals like WHO, they kind of assess their progress based on their inputs. Like we gave Chad this much money. Um, <laughs> we gave them, you know, 20 hours of technical assistance in October, but they're not um, really assessing the outcomes of, of that, uh, of those uh, inputs. And that's the big disconnect. Um, and I think that the people in the country are saying, no, we know what we need. Uh, we need time, first of all, to develop ourselves and to, you know, kind of retrofit our um, these standards and these guidelines to our actual context. And we need you to focus on these specific things, not the things that you want. So that's the the biggest thing when I saw when I saw this disconnect. Is just, it was just clear that the people on the ground were saying something that was very different to what we were actually funding or, or the kind of global goals that we were actually trying trying to achieve. The prescriptive nature of global health creates a major disconnect between funding organizations and the people on the ground doing the work. Dr. De Ruggiero also flagged how the data that's being collected is not necessarily useful data. It's also what we're measuring or not measuring. So without reliable and meaningful data on those things, we can't measure the problem, we can't track progress, and we can't guide planning um, and policy reforms. So if I take one of the goals, uh, which is SDG3, which is about good health and well-being, it includes a bunch of targets and indicators related to specific diseases and conditions, but it also includes some indicators around health systems. But if we don't have strong health information systems, which is, you know, a challenge um, in low and middle income countries, it would be really uh, challenging to actually measure progress well. And so I think there is lots of work that can be done to strengthen the information systems that kind of underpin our data collection efforts so that we can better uh, respond and develop strong health systems that meet the needs of different uh, population groups, right? For example, you know, there was a, a recent review done of, of health information systems globally, and one of the major weaknesses that was found was that data wasn't disaggregated enough to monitor equity, right? Or there was a lack of capacity to even analyze data. And so that's why we've started to see more calls for equity data, meaning data that's disaggregated, and where we can actually 
better monitor the differential impacts on how health systems are responding to different population groups by gender, race and ethnicity, etc. Sometimes emergencies like outbreaks, national disasters, and armed conflicts define an obvious and urgent global health need. Doctors Without Borders, or MSF from their French acronym, are often amongst the first to respond. Jason Nickerson, Humanitarian Affairs Advisor with MSF, spoke to us about how data collection to assess the specific needs of each situation is crucial to an effective response. Doing these kinds of assessments are quite tricky, right? You're operating with often incomplete kinds of information. You're in a often very dynamic kind of situation. Um, and so you're trying to, to do an assessment to make a reasonably well-informed decision about where to intervene and how and, and so on. But depending on the kind of assessment that you're doing, in some instances, there's actually very good kind of field epidemiology kinds of assessments that have been developed over many, many years to assess things like vaccination coverage and malnutrition and so on. And so there's agreed upon indicators and, and thresholds and, and international standards that, you know, provide some goalposts and, and uh, guidance for trying to understand what these needs are. But in other instances, you know, it's, it's much more difficult if you're coming into a, a severely disrupted health system and trying to understand something like what's the available surgical capacity or, you know, is there an appropriate number of inpatient beds or, or something like this? You know, these are, are really complex kinds of assessments. And so this is really where I think taking time and, and having quite uh, experienced teams coming in to make sense of this, to really make sure that needs are being properly assessed. You're taking into consideration things like sex and age and, and gender considerations to make sure that interventions are appropriately targeted and reaching the right communities of people and not inadvertently excluding people from accessing services. You know, there's a lot of different layers and, and factors that come into play in properly designing these kinds of interventions. As we've discussed, how global health projects are funded inevitably influences how different issues and projects are prioritized. Jason talked to us about how MSF is funded and what impacts this has on their organization. Because we are largely privately funded, it allows us to be able to react and to respond quite quickly on the basis of, of needs, as I was mentioning. So if we see a need that's unmet um, and we think that we have the operational capacity to be able to respond and, and provide assistance to address those needs, and then we can actually move very rapidly to, to be able to do that because we're not waiting necessarily on you know, a humanitarian funding appeal or on government grants or something else. So that's one of the things that sets us apart as uh, being quite unique, and there's many other considerations behind the private funding model, including the perception that it allows us to maintain, not just perception, but also the direct implementation of, of our principles being impartial, of being neutral and being independent. Uh, over the many years that MSF has been operational, you know, we've developed independent supply chains and logistic capacity that's internal to the organization as well. Joining our conversation with Jason was Colleen Doherty, a registered nurse and gender-based violence consultant who has also worked with MSF on several missions. Colleen expanded on what goes into planning a response at MSF. So when there is an emergency, for example, right now, Ethiopian refugees going into Sudan, or if there's a cholera outbreak in a certain context, our emergency team will go and assess the needs, assess the existing capacity to respond, either through the government, the Ministry of Health, but also the 
vast number of many other medical humanitarian organizations of the UN. And so look at what are the needs, what are the, the gaps in the response and decide whether or not to respond. We do have the possibility to immediately and rapidly deploy through these emergency teams. So it might be setting up a rapid um, cholera treatment center very quickly, or it might be more thoughtfully designing a strategy over a longer term of how to respond to the needs. Or it might be saying this actor has this capacity to respond or the reports we heard before arriving, before assessing in this context were not what we found on the ground in deciding not to respond. So ensuring that when we do respond, we're responding appropriately to the perceived needs of the population as well in ways that they will trust the medical care that's provided in ways that are accessible to them. We've talked a lot thus far about money and its powerful influence on global health. The power imbalance money creates often leads to poorer outcomes when money is shifted away from local priorities. Dr. Arondu talked to us about the essential nature of grounding actions in local expertise and supporting on-the-ground organizations directly. I think aid organizations need to fund local organizations directly. Um, I think, of course, they should be vetted. Of course, you should understand like uh, which partners you're working with. But there are a lot of amazing on-the-ground institutions, civil society organizations, advocacy groups that should be funded directly to do whatever that they specialize in. And I think that is how, you know, we work towards a more equitable and successful future. Full stop. You know, when I was in Guinea, I thought I was coming to help them to strengthen their surveillance. Like kind of after uh, they had the biggest kind of shock to their system, I thought I was coming to just like help them like build up a surveillance system that um, they could use for, for just kind of routine health. But then we had another outbreak. And so I ended up responding to that. But by the time I came, there was so much more investment in local communities. You know, it's like, you know, as a, as a foreigner, we come in and say, oh, this was a French, a post-French colony. We need people who speak French. Okay, well, when you go into the villages, they don't speak French. Like only the educated, <laughs> the educated Ghanaians speak French who've gone to uni and things like that. And so it took a while, but but we got there in the end. And obviously we saw a lot more success with the interventions that we put forth. And if you think about, you know, global health as a whole, it works everywhere. You know, like I, I have less experience with Canada, more with the U.S. But in the U.S., like, yes, there are 50 states, but... I'm from the state called Missouri, and I don't look to the capital of Missouri for my trusted community leaders. I'm from a city called St. Louis. I look at St. Louis like that is my, you know, catchment area. That's what I look at. And so I think as, you know, as close to the community as we can be is important. I think taking the lessons that we've learned from global health and translating them to a community level all around the world is what we can do uh, to make global health stronger. I think global health needs to be smaller, and that's how it'll be more successful by funding these uh, communities, by translating these larger lessons into um, specific community contexts, by working very closely with actual community leaders and kind of multiplying that over like states and provinces and countries and regions. I think that's how we make global health more equitable. Next, we hear from Haban Ali, a Somali-Canadian community builder who is actively involved in initiatives that involve health equity and removing systemic barriers for youth, especially those from racialized and low socioeconomic communities. She also provides an example of how actions may be translated from a global to a local level. But first, Haban shares her personal story about having a younger brother with a developmental disability and the treatments her parents faced at the hospital. 
She talks about how these experiences guide her work in global health. My personal story actually guides a lot of what I'm doing here today. So both of my parents are uh, were refugees from Somalia. They arrived to Canada in the 1990s. And growing up as a daughter of Somali refugees in an under-resourced, predominantly racialized and immigrant community, I had a unique perspective in policymaking and community building. But there were very few opportunities for folks in our communities, especially youth, to engage in having our voices heard and engage in avenues where we could be creating sustainable change that we knew our community needed. I also noticed something different in the way my parents were treated at the hospital. When I accompanied my father, healthcare providers were quick to provide me with a coloring book and say, your kid sit off to the side. He spoke English without an accent. So when I accompanied him, they would give me that coloring book. And whereas visits with my mother, you know, I was required to become the intermediary translator. She speaks four languages. English is the last language she learned. So I, I realized that with the same healthcare providers, that dynamic changed. Her presence was met with like question of competence and condescending remarks. And I remember feeling frustrated, very angry, sad uh, when we left those, those meetings with physicians. And uh, that was my earliest memory of systemic racism coming from the very same systems that were supposed to be sort supporting a youth, my brother. But it also sparked my interest for community service and health promotion and science. So I'm really thankful for that time. And I really believe that, like, you know, our, our civic engagement is tied to our health in terms of who is heard and who is not and what voices are, are taken seriously and who our political leaders and parties have political will for and push the needle for. And, and like I said to you earlier, I, I do view um, health in the social determinants of health framework. So I view that like employment, income, housing, so many different things can impact our health. And so I really do think that BIPOC youth do face a disadvantage in many institutions, including the healthcare system and our education system in navigating political institutions that are meant to serve us. And this is one example that I have from my experiences with Apathy's Boring. So in this report, they looked at uh, youth engagement and political participation, and they found that there's actually a crisis in Canada's political culture. Uh, there's a perception of distrust between public and political decision makers, and few Canadians have strong trust in political institutions such as uh, parliament, uh, political parties, and mass media. Uh, many groups are made to be marginalized and vulnerable by systems of oppression, but for me personally, that has been exemplified in the experiences that Black and Indigenous youth have across this country, and even being a part of Building Canada's national youth policy, you know, going throughout Ontario, Quebec, and I even had the pleasure of traveling to Nunavut and learning about the experiences of youth across this country. Uh, while there are very distinct experiences held by Black and Indigenous youth, you know, these are not monolithic groups of people. There's so much diversity and richness in culture amongst, you know, both both communities. There is similar threads in some of this oppression that we face from various institutions and. I definitely think that has negative health impacts. The history of global health is a history of colonialism and white supremacy. We asked Dr. Irondu about the importance of recognizing this history. Studying in, in the UK, I have mostly 
kind of read about global health is- history from a European perspective, um, which is why we use language like decolonize, because as we know, like the British Empire was one of the biggest empires in recent history. And so global health, um, or as it's known today, really was rooted in this colonial expansion of the imperial arm of the British uh, of the British system. And so it was to protect the people that were going to the colonizers, basically, was to protect protect them. It was like, okay, we don't want our citizens dying in India. We don't want our, you know, from malaria. We don't want our citizens in Nigeria having different foodborne illnesses. So let's, you know, let's create research studies, a whole scientific branch of tropical medicine uh, so that we can really unpack what's happening and we can protect our own. That's what it was for. You know, if you read some of the histories uh even when they started discovering like quinine and ways to kind of inoculate themselves from malaria, they weren't sharing that with the population around them. It was for them. And so colonialism and white supremacy is are one in the same vein. You know, I mean, just full stop. You know, the fact that, you know, a group of people thought that it was okay to go to someone else's land to enslave them or to take their resources or whatever to, ha- to, to divide and conquer, to create, you know, false lines and call it a country, to initiate all of a, a lot, most of kind of the civil unrest, the, the sectarian issues that we have in a lot of, you know, previous colonies, that is all out of white supremacy. You know, that is all about this belief that one group of people are better than another group of people. You know, like, yes, Spain and England, they fought, um, but they also exchanged um, kings and queens. You know what I mean? They found ways uh, to live in peace. It's just not the same at all. And so I think unpacking colonialism and global health is key to equity and equality. It's key to trying to right a lot of those wrongs. But the larger issue, I think, that needs to first be kind of unpacked and improved and, and you know, is this structural the structural inequality between the global north and the global south because the global north has all the money. The importance of prioritizing youth perspectives in the context of global health can't be understated. Indeed, it's an important component of the ongoing project of decolonization. We'll hear more about the role of youth in global health later on in this episode. But here, we asked Dr. Irondo the broader question of what it means to decolonize global health. Decolonizing global health really starts with, it starts in two ways. First is the global north or Western countries or white majority countries looking at the, reviewing the systems that they have in place and listening to the students in institutions, listening to minorities in their organizations, uh, our minority populations or black and brown populations, um, listening to women, you know what I mean? And just really, because there are all these structures in place that has been there that continue to marginalize and oppress these populations. And these populations are continuously ignored and dismissed. And in order to really examine and understand the colonial nature of our organizations and institutions, we have to listen to them. I think the second part is more about the global south or um, less rich countries, um, but the global north still has something to do with this and is providing them a platform. So I recently wrote about intersectionality and like, you know, obviously I have a lot of privilege because yes, I'm Nigerian, but I'm also from the U.S. I also, I speak a language, not just in English, but in the way that I understand concepts and things because I was I was raised in a majority white country, basically, and I can navigate kind of the systems much more adeptly than 
somebody that was born and raised in Nigeria. You know what I mean? So that's one part of it. The second part of it is that I'm pretty middle class. Yes, I've worked alongside people that um, come from poor communities or are a lower socioeconomic status, but I have not experienced what they've experienced. So while I have a platform, I find it really important that they have a platform as well. And I think that there are a lot of barriers to ensuring that they have a platform. One is this, you know, the structural barriers of them just not having the access because they didn't go to the universities. Um, they, did, they didn't work for the organizations. They, they chose to work for community organizations that are not well known um, or well vetted or, you know, that don't you know, traditionally meet the standard of what a Western organization would say is a good partner. That is something that I've noticed um, for a lot of my colleagues in the Global South is that they're quite hesitant to lean in because they don't think their voices will be heard because they're afraid to rock the boat. You know, again, it comes to that inequitable power. But, you know, we need both to happen. We need both to happen. We need folks to lean in. We need them to have a platform to lean in. Uh, we need to create the environment for them to lean in. Um, but there, I think we have to start, uh, the next generation or the current generation of global health leaders um, have to encourage each other. And that, and that I think, can fall on you and me as well, right? Like, since we do have privilege, how do we, how do we share our privilege so that folks from less privileged backgrounds can lean in? You know what I mean? How, how can they stand on our privilege platforms so that they can have more of a voice? How can we write op-eds with them? You know, how can we amplify their voices on Twitter, on um, different social media platforms? Because it all matters. We continued our conversation with Dr. Irondu, asking how language and rhetorical substitution contribute to white supremacy in global health specifically. We talk about like the systems of decolonizing global health, the global north and the global south, when we really mean white majority um, versus like everybody else. Because another thing that happens when you talk about global north and global south, you include the minority and marginalized and oppressed populations of the global north. You know, so there are some funding organizations right now that if you're like if you're a black indigenous or person of color um, ran organization that wants to kind of work with a global south organization, they'll say, no, you can't because you're part of the global north. It's like I'm part of the global north, but I'm not receiving any of the benefits of being part of the global north. I am not a powerful entity of the global north. A lot of people don't look at it that way. A lot of people somehow kind of separate the imperialistic past to current times. I went one time to the Global Health Summit, which is a crazy word, a name for this uh, small group of people who, who gather every year in Berlin. And um, I remember saying it would be really good to talk about decolonized global health because there's a lot of like leaders there, like everybody from like the top leaders um, of global health go there. And like the, the person who was running it just kind of scoffed at me. So are, are we just talking about this? Or are we actually trying to do something about it? And I think that one of the deeper conversations we need to have about uh, decoloniality is what specifically are we saying? And and how can we, you know, think of other words? How can we build a better lexicon that talks very specifically about what we're talking about? Otherwise, we're going to be dismissed all in all in one. When we all could be talking about very different things. Like I talk a lot about, you know, institutional prejudice and discrimination in academia, which is not the same as, you know, somebody talking about like the legacy of colonialism in malaria or or someone talking about like, you know, how Ebola wasn't actually discovered by Peter Piat. Like, you know, there are all these different aspects that I think we need to pull out. And I and I think that's how we kind of 
upkeep white supremacy. I also think another way that we upkeep white supremacy is who frames these conversations. So I, I think we need to have a lot more leaning out of white older men, not to say that they shouldn't be part of the conversation, is that they should be humble enough to include others in part of that conversation as well. And so I just think that type of dignity and respect should be given to, you know, everybody, basically. The theme of humility and vulnerability continues to be a concept that is emphasized as being needed in global health. It's particularly important to have a critical lens towards the work one is doing to reduce harm and ensure equitable practices. We asked Habon about the importance of teaching this to emerging global health leaders. A concept that I think needs to be emphasized more is vulnerability and justice in global health. And I think a couple of our professors have touched on it, but unfortunately I haven't gotten it in the depth that I've wanted to learn. And hopefully, I don't know if I'll get that next semester, but it's definitely something that we haven't explored in depth this semester. But just to think that, you know, as we're going through this program, we're learning how to be global health uh, leaders and, and we're going to all go different ways, whether that's continuing education or whether that's policy making or whether that's community building efforts or working in various different sectors. But to know that historically, you know, there has been a lot of harm done in the name of science. There's been a lot of harm done in the name of humanitarian work. There's been a lot of harm done uh, in global health. And how do we assure that when we conduct work, whether it's across Canada or across the world, that we are reducing the harm that we have or that we are uh, shifting the power and even amplifying local communities to lead the work that they need to do uh, so that, like, you know, we're not perpetuating that white savior complex that I see in a lot of global health work, but also in, in the principles of our research as well, ensuring that there's equity and that we don't create more harm than good when we enter communities that we are not a part of. So that's something I want to explore more. I haven't gotten the chance to do it, but I have a lifetime. So hopefully I get the chance to do that. As we seek to decolonize global health, we must also ensure multidisciplinary participation from a wide range of different sectors in society. Advancing health requires everyone. Dr. DeRuggiero discussed this in the context of global health diplomacy, an emerging field at the intersection of health, public policy, and global affairs. In the last, uh, I guess, 10, 15 years, global health diplomacy has started to gain more and more attention. And it's a process of engaging many actors to try to shape the global policy context that I described earlier in this podcast interview and how it influences health or how health gets positioned in foreign policy negotiations. So we've seen this kind of expansion in the number and diversity of public, private, and nonprofit actors, in part because of globalization. They're all competing for attention and resources. And many are trying to like influence these policy agendas. And so there's this real need to figure out how to best negotiate in this very complex space. And the second reason global health diplomacy is, you know, gaining traction is that there's this recognition that sectors, trade, environment, labor, which was the example I just gave earlier, 
are operating outside of the health system, but they have a direct impact on health. And so this is where global health diplomacy sort of um, plays a role. And uh, we've got lots of examples of how it plays out in different uh, negotiations um, led by governments, but influenced by civil society, by the private sector, uh, by researchers, etc. But you know, none of these actors are really all on the same page. Some have shared agendas, but in the global space, we're negotiating for resources, attention. I mean, earlier in this discussion, you talked about, well, why is something not getting as much attention as others? You know, that's a negotiated process or set of processes. And I think because we're talking about global health diplomacy, we're also comes from a recognition that health is not always in the center stage, you know, it can be an afterthought. Yet many of the decisions and actions that are taken in sectors outside of health can have a profound impact on public health. Because even though a vaccine may seem like a health-driven initiative, you know, it still needs to engage many sectors from purchasing to procurement, the R&D and innovation sectors, industry, obviously, because many of the pharmaceutical countries need to be invoked, but also bringing a health or health equity lens to the forefront so that at the end of the day, we're going to have fair and equitable access to vaccines, which is the the end goal here, I think is absolutely critical because, you know, we know we're as strong as our weakest link here, but not everyone believes that or buys that argument in the same way and revert back to wanting to protect their own interests, their own citizens and not cooperate. And global health diplomacy, I think, is really trying to encourage that the multilateral negotiations and discussions. And the vaccine, you know, topic is still evolving, right? Uh, But there are many other examples where this has really, really been critical. And, you know, health, while it's not always at the table, is starting to become an instrument of diplomacy, actually. And so it kind of gets brought in from behind sometimes just, uh, but isn't always, you know, the number one focus. This question of who's at the table is central to how global health policies are developed, but it also impacts what value we put on perspectives from around the world and how different ideas are shared. We asked Dr. Irandu about these structural inequities faced by African scientists and scholars, in particular seeking to advance global health knowledge. I'll just talk about it from um, my experience in academia. So like the structural inequality in academia, like when it comes to like global health research has to do with visas, you know, like who has access to the best public schools in the world? Do you know what I mean? Even conferences, you know, there's been so many times that some of the the most intelligent and most prolific authors and uh, scientists in poor countries can't come over to talk to us about things so they don't have a voice. And so their their prominence actually diminishes because they have less visibility, you know. I think it was like less than 1% of first authors are from African countries. But if you look at the amount of research done in African countries for public health, that doesn't make any sense at all. COVID-19 is kind of like 
not the great equalizer, but a little bit of the great equalizer because rich countries are suffering as well. And yet you have research papers coming out with all the authors, 20 authors being from, you know, let's say Canada, the US and the UK about COVID-19 in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it's like, okay, not one Congolese author. Like that's crazy. Like the, the structural imbalance there is what journal editor thought it was okay to even publish that. Can you imagine 20 author paper from Congolese researchers, Nigerian researchers, Ghanaian researchers about how political madness in the U.S. is leading to higher or poor um, COVID-19 outcomes. Do you think anybody would publish that? Do you know what I mean? They wouldn't. They simply wouldn't. I've been on papers that are just African authors. And I recently in Twitter asked how many people have had eight reviewers for a paper? Like I've written a lot of papers. I've never had eight reviewers. Like, like, And it's because there's this assumption that if an an all African group of authors wrote a paper that is not as um, solid or it's not as good, you know, which is crazy. So that has nothing to do um, with, you know, our behavior or anything like that. It has to do with how these journals were set up. Dr. Arondu expanded on the structural determinants of health and explained how the Global North's unwillingness to recognize non-white expertise is detrimental to health outcomes. Maison Sans Frontières, which I, I highly admire, their staff has really been speaking out on the colonial nature of the organization and how that is detrimental to the people that they're supposed to serve. A lot of people that are being treated by Maison Sans Frontières, they don't have a choice. Even if the, the doctors are rude or dismissive, and the, the structural barrier is this, this power dynamic that not even the local staff can really speak up against you know, the supervisors and that all the supervisors are white, all the supervisors are imported from other countries and you could be doing everything wrong. Like you might've read that in um, Islam, you washed the body of people who die. Clearly, you know, that is a transmission route. And I mean, it took months before practitioners on the ground were like, oh, we need like, you know, safe burials. Like how come there wasn't someone from Guinea that was there to tell them? Or even if you can't be from Guinea, there are other countries in that region that have very similar customs. And I just feel like, you know, global health really dismisses the local expertise Colleen and Jason talked about MSF's reflective and self-critical culture and the work they're doing to elevate local voices. I think we're also having difficult conversations about who is pushing for that change. And we know that there are limited opportunities for people from the global south within the current way the humanitarian system is structured. And I think we are needing to really look at our own organization and many other organizations are doing this about who is the expert and whose voices need to be listened to and how can we amplify the voices of our, our national staff, of our colleagues from the global south who have that on the ground experience, more on the ground experience than myself. And not only the individual voices, but how to change structures so that we can amplify those voices more and have more effective ways to then advocate for for change. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what we're trying to do more of, to make sure that the voices that we're bringing to the table are, are people who are directly affected by the issues that we're talking about. South Sudanese or a Congolese physician is going to be able to talk about healthcare in those countries in a way that I'm never going to be able to. They are the experts. They're able to speak with you know additional insight that I just don't have. 
As we briefly discussed earlier in the episode, one essential step towards the goal of decolonization and equity in global health is advancing the perspectives of youth, who are challenged not only from not having a seat at the table, but also by stereotypes about disengagement with political processes. We hear Habon's take on this. We need to first address why young people, especially young Canadians, feel disconnected from traditional political processes. Because it's not that young people, it's not that they're not politically informed. Uh, Young people are a lot of these things. It's just that um, there's a lack of trust with government. There's a lot of youth who have different and employment and socioeconomic outcomes that really impact how they engage with civic and democratic institutions. And a lot of young people don't feel like they have a say in what the government does. And the way young people participate are, are shifting, you know, as a lot of young people are swapping to forms of participation that they see as community-based, non-institutional social movements and that form of engagement. And that comes from young voices not being respected and not being heard or being tokenized in spaces of power. So I really think that it's important to give young people power and space. You know, there's a myth that young people are apathetic and that they're not engaged in democracy, but we are and we're leading um, non-conventional forms of action. We've seen the political demonstrations that are currently ongoing, protests, marches, petitions, information sharing that, that that's like taken over all of our Instagram feeds. You know, people are informed and they want to be involved, but we have to make space. And I think for youth, a lot of us want to have a seat at the table because we have high stakes in the decisions that are being made. You know, we're going to be living with them for the rest of our lives. So because of these stakes, you know, young people tend to have, you know, radical forward thinking views, but we are not mistaken in having that, especially when we're looking at the magnitude of the crises facing our generation. These perspectives should be welcomed and respected and acted on. I really think uh, youth, and we're, we're not obviously we're not a monolithic group. Youth come from rural, urban areas, different culture, gender identities, everything. We're coming with all of our, you know, different identities to the table. So definitely different youth have different perspectives to bring to the table. But I think the unique unique perspective of the entire youth group is that most of us tend to be forward thinking. We want uh, action and, and these voices should be heard. I think because like I said earlier, youth tend to be radical thinking and this isn't necessarily bad. It's that we're young and the decisions that are being made. So to give you an example, we're currently in a climate crisis. We're living through a pandemic. Uh, We're living through a racial justice crisis. There's a lot on the table right now. And young people who hopefully we're going to hold space on this earth for the next 50 to 70 years, um, you know, if our life expectancy, you know, that, that's different for, for different young people in the world, unfortunately. But we have high stakes in the decisions that are being made. And we will live with the repercussions of those decisions that are being made for the rest of our lives. So is there political precedents or whether there's projects that are not aligned with climate just future or whether it's that we're losing generations of young people because of systemic racism and that they're being left out of educational systems, employment opportunities. They're not being allowed to shift in this future that we're building. They're excluded from the futures that we're building. And that's really scary. So I think that the unique perspective that you bring to the table is that we, we bring fresh eyes. We're really not bogged down by life, by the world, by red tape, by bureaucracy. We see things for what they are. And we have often a moral responsibility to say and to act on things uh, and exactly as how they are. 
Um, but we also bring the perspective of innovation and of that forward thinking for the future and the responsibility we have for the earth that we'll be inhabiting for decades to come. As we've alluded to, in addition to listening to and learning from youth, there's also an essential opportunity to learn from actors around the world. As Dr. Arondu explained, health systems in the global north have a lot to learn from the practical experiences of those in the global south in addressing health challenges. I've worked mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, where a lot of the disease surveillance successes have been funded by USAID. Yet, in the West, we actually don't have very good disease surveillance in, in some of our countries. You know, um, For example, in the States, because it's so fragmented, because it's a federal system, the CDC requests data, but they don't necessarily always get it. The West can learn a lot from mostly Africa when it comes to disease surveillance, to be honest. I think they're very ahead of Asia um, and even Latin America when it comes to disease disease surveillance because they're always dealing with kind of emerging or re-emerging infections, but also because they've been invested specifically in, you know, this IDSR strategy. I think we need better systems for mandatory reporting. I think that a lot of our reporting systems in the West are delayed. I think that we also need to find ways to reach communities. In, in Africa, we call it sensitization. So you you talk to the mothers and you talk about the vaccines and things like that. So you educate them and they understand it for themselves, that it's important and they're more likely to bring their children um, to get vaccinated during the uh, appropriate immunization schedule. Whereas in the West, we've kind of just take that, taken that for granted. And so we've seen a rise of anti-vaxxers. We've seen a rise of measles and all these different things. And part of um, disease surveillance isn't just monitoring the diseases, but it's also preventing the diseases. You know what I mean? It's actually surveillance doesn't happen without action. Whereas a lot of times I think in the West, because of power struggles, politics, all this other stuff, it does happen without action. We have like these huge surveys, but we're not able to do anything about them on a regional or, or even a state level, uh, but definitely a lot of times not on a federal level. We're not able to act very quickly on things in order to um, to stop the increase of certain disease the incidence of measles, for example. So we've been having um, more and more measles outbreaks for the past five years in the States, but the anti-vaccination movement has just gotten stronger. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And that's very scary. And, and I think we need to be more creative about like how do we really engage with these communities? Um, because we, we have been successful as a public health community, global health community in other countries. Like people are people. Like, people from the West are not, like, markedly different from people from Sub-Saharan Africa or from Southeast Asia. People are people. So it's about finding ways to talk to those communities so that they can adopt healthy lifestyles or agree with the need for vaccinations and uh, different preventative measures for themselves so they can actually appreciate it and value it themselves. So I think that's that's one way to make our system better, other than just improving the system in itself, but also um, improving our actions to uh, reduce uh, disease prevalence. In concluding our conversation, we asked Dr. Arundu what advice she would have for people who are interested in meaningful engagement with global health. So sometimes, like speaking with you, you're a young white man who is interested in decolonized global health. And some of the things that I have said may sound like you don't have a place, but the truth is, is we all have a place. And that's what decolonized global health is about, full stop. We all have a place. But for a long time, you and me, actually, because I'm from the West, we've taken up way more places than we need to. And the truth is, is that 
we need to share that space. And so anybody that's trying to come into global health, I think it's important to understand your privilege, understand like your your skills, but also understand your weaknesses and understand the gaps in your knowledge. And it's not about you having to know everything. It's about you working in a complementary fashion uh, so that we can actually achieve quote unquote global health. Like I think what I want to achieve is collaboration with partners from all around the world uh, to fight against infectious diseases. That's what I want to achieve. And I think we all should kind of have this personal statement of what we want to achieve in our careers. And it needs to be towards human progress, um, not necessarily towards, you know, dominating a region that's not where you're from or even one that's where you're from. Like even in Canada, like you're you're not an indigenous individual in Canada. Like there's so much you can learn. So it's like, what are we working towards in establishing what you want to work towards and who you need to work with to get there, I think is very, very important as you start your career in global health. And also just realizing all the ways that global health has benefited us in the West um, or or us as, you know, white people or, or us as me, as men. I think if you can realize how it has benefited you and how you have kind of unmerited privilege, you can do different things to correct it. And I, I always think that like people don't think that individual actions matter, but they matter so much. You know, um, I had this one uh, supervisor at CDC who, when we would go to different countries, he would stand in the back and I would sit in the front and it forced the people to talk to me. Because if he sat where we sat, there's no way they would even look at me. And like what he's done for me and maybe even for them, you know, is it's been life changing for my career. Understanding like because you give power or that you allow other people to gain power doesn't mean that it takes power away from you. Meaning like it doesn't make you less when you give more room to other people. I think it actually increases who you are as a person and what we can do together as a global health community. Uh, so really understanding your privileges and, and finding ways to, to leverage that for other people, I think is really important. And then finally, I'll say like whatever you're passionate about, you should do it. Don't use anything from decolonized global health to, you know, count yourself out. Count yourself in, but just do it in a more collaborative way. And as we've heard throughout this episode, global health is local health. Habon leaves us with some parting words emphasizing the importance of local engagement and collaboration. Global health and the sustainable development goals are not things that just happen abroad. They are things that are relevant to Canada. They are goals that are relevant to Canada, principles that are relevant to Canada, and work that we need to do in our local communities as well. So I would say, like, just in your own neighborhood or in your city or in, in your communities, who does not have access and who who does not have what they need to be home to, or have a home, have access to home, have access to employment, have access to education, you know, because of the financial barriers, socioeconomic barriers, and, and, and different systems of oppression, I would say, look, look within your local spaces and see what organizations, communities that you can support in meaningful ways. And uh, don't limit yourself to just the health perspective, because I think like we, we've discussed in this discussion, uh, there are so many aspects of a person's life that impact health that, that we need to focus on as well. There's so many things that allow someone to be healthy and to lead uh, to be 
to lead a good life and to lead the full potential of their lives. So I would say if you're interested in global health, definitely go listen to the academics and read seminal papers and do the important work, I guess, but also connect to people. And I think that's what drew me to this program and connect to the human experience. And reducing health inequity was one of the major challenges that I'm focused on. So I want to look at all the aspects that impact a person's health and create disparity and see how I can push back against that, create solutions with others. And yeah, you don't have to do that alone. I've never done anything alone. Do it with someone, do it with a group. You know, we go farther when we're together. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Erica de Ruggiero, Dr. Ngozi Arondu, Jason Nickerson, Colleen Doherty, and Habon Ali for taking the time to speak with us and share their insights. And of course, thank you for listening. This episode was hosted by myself, Noor, and Frank Telper. Nathan Chan helped conduct interviews. Steph Nishi helped develop content. Jesse Knight was our executive producer. Alex Jacob and Richie Jeremiah were our audio engineers. Keep an ear out for our next episode in two weeks on water. Until then, keep it raw. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and give us a five-star rating. Until next time, keep it raw.